If you have your Bible on you, you can open to 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. 2 Peter 3. Let's pray together. Father, your word tells us that if we trust you and obey you, you act. Psalm 37. So, trust your spirit to work. We know that your word will do what you send it to do. It will accomplish that for which you send it. It will not return to you empty or void. And so send out your word. Make me an instrument. Give us all open hearts and minds to your truth. Help us to combat the myths and the lies and the falsehoods that are growing around us in our culture, in our world, in our lives, and even in our own minds and hearts. Let your word chop down those roots and build healthy trees so we can be a healthy church. Trust your spirit to work for the sake of the exaltation of Jesus and for your glory, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So today, we begin our summer sermon series called A Healthy Church. So... I think it needs a little disclaimer first. Just so you know who I am and what I'm about and what I think as a preacher and as a pastor and as a theologian. So, to me, it is of utmost importance that what a healthy church does, one of the things that a healthy church does, is preach the Bible expositionally. So expositional preaching, in my mind, and in the mind of many other trusted theologians, pastors, and preachers, expositional preaching is a priority. And that is what is going to cause us to be a healthy church. That and many other things. And so that is why we walked through 1 Corinthians. Since I've been here, we went through 1 Peter, uh, and rather quickly, actually. Uh, Ephesians took... We went through Ephesians, that took about two years, and then we just finished 1 Corinthians, which took three and a half years. So that, to me, is us as a church being faithful to God's word, exposing. So the word exposition, when I say expositional preaching, if you don't know what that is, it is literally unraveling God's word one verse at a time. You're exposing what is already there. Uh, Versus, say, topical preaching, where you kind of pick a topic and just say, oh, I'm going to talk about, let's just say, marriage. And you just grab some verses out of the Bible and kind of make them say what you want them to say. I don't think that's faithful preaching. I don't think it's wrong, but I think it would be unhealthy if that were the identity of a church. Now, the reason I'm giving you this disclaimer is because now, this summer, we're doing a topical series, which is totally out of my realm of comfort. As far as just, I'm so used to just being in a book of the Bible. So this fall, September, we're going to jump into a new book. I don't know exactly which one that will be yet. The leadership needs to pray and talk about that. However, now we're doing a basically a top of the series. But I wanted to, because we're doing top of the series, I wanted you to hear about exposition as expositional preaching. 
Because my goal is to, within each topic, as we talk about 12 different topics of a healthy church, I want you to understand that my aim is to still do expositional preaching of God's word. To take a text, unravel it, understand it, and then apply it to our lives and to us as a church. And I think that's important for you to know, because I think you need to know what I'm up to. And I want accountability from our people, from the congregation, to faithful, faithfully preaching God's word. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go over the next 13 weeks, we're going to cover 12 topics that I believe makes a healthy church. Now these 12 topics are not the only 12 things that make a healthy church. And not only that, they're not the top 12 things that make a healthy church. Because I would put expositional preaching as like number one or two, probably, on the list of important things. And so, uh, and we're not even going to talk about expositional preaching in these topics. Because my aim is for a more applicable reality for how we function and how you function as an individual within the church. So, I've been praying about this for a while. And as I prayed, I was just like, all right, God, give me... I don't care how many there are, whatever numbers, just tell me what things Grace Church needs to hear from your word, from you, that will make us a healthier church. And so these are the 12 things that I believe God has said, all right, Mark, these are the things that are going to help Grace Church become a healthy church and grow. Now, when I use the word grow, I'm not talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about individual growth. Theological growth, doctrinal growth, relational growth, spiritual growth, growth in knowledge and wisdom. Those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about when I say growth. Because I'd rather have a healthy church with 50 members than an unhealthy church with 500. We're not building a church. I've said this a million times to you guys. We're not building a church. We're building God's kingdom. So my aim is your heart and your growth. A healthy church is filled with healthy Christians. And healthy Christians do one thing in particular that I think is of primary importance, and that is they explore the depths of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the topic for today. A healthy church explores Christ. So today we have before us the most important person in the history of the world, Jesus. He's our Lord He's our Savior, our brother, our friend, and our God. He is loving. He is kind. He is faithful. He's great. He's powerful, patient, good, wise, obedient, convicted, disciplined, honest, meek, merciful, secure, Gentle, forgiving, humble, courageous, fair, true, content, generous, pure, holy, perfect, and righteous. He is all that matters. He is all that matters. He is the pinnacle of human history. He is the purpose for existence. And he is the point of everything. He is the meaning of every sentence. 
even if that sentence is a lie. That lie is meant to reveal that it's not true and that he is the truth. He is the entire purpose that ev- for everything existing. That he would be exalted and that in the exaltation of Jesus, God would be glorified. His glory is the aim of everything. His glory, his exaltation is the purpose of your life. His exaltation is our goal as a church, as a congregation, as a community, and individually as persons. That's our purpose, to exalt Christ. He alone is the reason that you're saved. And so here's my point. My point is that Jesus is the point of everything. So when I talk about Jesus that way, I think that most of you would just, you know, in your head you're going, yeah, yeah, honest, yeah, true, yeah, righteous, faithful, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's the purpose, yeah, he's the most glorious being, yeah, his exaltations, everything, oh, yeah, 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 preach it, Pastor Mark, that's right, amen, yeah, Jesus is awesome. And when I say these things and I describe Christ this way, I doubt any of you are going, I don't believe that. No, he's not the Savior. I mean, you probably wouldn't be here if you didn't think he was, right? Okay, so I would imagine most of you are like totally on the same page as me right now. You're totally in agreement. My aim today is not to make sure we're on the same page. My aim today is for you to turn the page. I know that you already know Jesus is glorious. I already know that you know that Jesus is good and faithful and true and honest and, and righteous and pure and holy. And we, I get all these words that I've used to describe him, all these explanations that I've already posed to you about Christ, you probably already agree with. I, and that's fantastic. But if you already know that, I'm telling you, it's time to move on. Not ignore those things, but let them be the foundation of us moving forward. My desire is for us to make some progress. So here's my agenda today. My agenda is this. I want to teach you that it is vital, vital to your spiritual health to explore the depths of Christ that you have not yet explored. To explore the depths of Christ that you have not yet even considered. And to explore the depths of Christ that make you uncomfortable. And that one's probably the most important. Because we love comfort. We live in a culture of comfort. A few years ago, uh, there was this movement within the Christian church uh, where they decided to kind of like make Jesus a little more relevant. So they started this idea called Jesus in Jeans. And they took Jesus and they, they took this, you know, we've got, the, when you think of Christ, I mean, don't you think of him in like a robe sitting on a rock with this beautiful landscape behind him and he's holding like a sheep <laughs> and talking to children or something? <laughs> Not in the Bible, but we have that image in our head, don't we? And like, we just think of this ancient human from 2,000 years ago, which is more accurate than Jesus in jeans. 
I don't think genes were even created to like the 20th century. I don't really know if that's true. Probably should have researched that. I don't know. Either way, I know he didn't wear jeans. Okay? And, but there's still this concept of like, let's make Jesus more relevant. Let's get Jesus to a place where people can feel comfortable. We don't want to make people feel uncomfortable with Jesus. We want Jesus to look really like, you know, hey, I take, I'll accept everybody. Is that really who he is? It's not. The Bible is described. I mean, is he compassionate and loving and understanding? Did he eat with sinners? Yes. Was he the one guy who sat down with the people that no one else would sit down? Yes. In that sense, he's incredibly receptive. But at the same time, he's not going to fade on truth just for your comfort. And I don't want you to fade on truths that you could miss out on that make Jesus even more glorious because we're too comfortable with what we already believe. So I want to stretch your heart. I want to stretch your flesh. I want to stretch your mind and cause you to say, you know what, there are things about Jesus that I don't really like to think about because if they're true, I might have to change the way I think. And we don't like that. I've got a theology. It's right here. I'm cool with this, and I'm going to coast on this doctrine and this theology about who Jesus is for the rest of my life. That is not growth. We have to dig a little deeper. Okay? And we're going to explore, I think, a little bit of Jesus. And my aim here today is not to explore all these ideas about Jesus that are deeper than you could think. In fact, I don't think we're going to go that deep into Christ today. My desire is to motivate you. So instead of giving you a fish, I want to teach you how to fish, right? I want to motivate you to explore, spend the rest of your life exploring the depths of Christ and not just settling with the Jesus you already know. The Jesus you already know is enough. I'm not saying he's not. He is enough. But he wants more of you. And you, if you really believe the things that you already believe about him, you ought to want more of him. So we get this warning from Paul as we think about digging deeper into Christ and the comfort that our world has and our desire to know more about Jesus. And, and this is what Paul warns us of in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Comfort is a myth. Comfort creates bad theology. Comfort gives us this sense that I don't have to move into deeper passions. I don't have to work harder. I'm, I'm good with where I am. And what Paul is saying is, you're going to, in that little comfort zone that you refuse to move out of, you're going to start to get so comfortable that when people start teaching you things about Jesus that you don't like, and it gets a little too deep for you because you haven't been lifting enough spiritual weights, you're going to start going, whoa, 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 dude, you're stepping into my, you're kind of ruining my comfort couch here. Don't get your muddy Jesus shoes on my comfort couch. I'm kind of lounging here, and you're making me very uncomfortable. And so we kind of ward off truth 
and start settling with who we think Jesus is. We think that's enough. And in order to protect those comforts or those ideas about him, we start creating a new doctrine, a new theology, new thoughts about Christ to protect ourselves from having to go deeper into who he really is. That's the road, the slippery slope we wander down if we aren't willing to explore the depths of Christ. So, in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, I'm going to start in the middle of verse 15. Peter says this. Just as our beloved brother Paul, so he's talking about the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some, listen to this, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So a couple of things. Number one, notice that Peter is essentially validating Paul's letters as scripture. That's, that's just something, it's a side note, more like. What I really want to get into is how important it is as Peter evaluates what Paul says as being hard to understand. So Peter sympathizes with the reader. He sympathizes with the churches that are reading Paul's letter, and he recognizes it's going to be hard for you to grasp the depths of the things that Paul teaches in his letters. And guess what, church? Those letters that was hard for them to grasp, those very letters that Peter says, hey, church, there might be, there's going to be things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Those are the same letters in this book right here. So that is incredibly applicable to us as a church. So I can say to you, just like Peter says to the church, because we're the church, there are things in the Bible that will be hard to understand. If you've been a Christian for more than a week, you probably already know that, right? I mean, there are a lot of questions. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and ask me just some of the craziest questions. What do you do about this person? What do you think about this concept? Or what and and there's, just, there's a million questions in the Bible. And honestly, once you dig deeper into Jesus, you're going to create more questions than answers. That's a good thing. That's okay. That means there's something you don't know that they're still there for you to learn. So as you discover questions, while you explore Jesus in God's word, and the questions come, write them down. Research them study God's word, find the answers, talk to me, talk to an elder, talk to your uh, trusted spiritual leader of yours. Those questions become the platform on which you build a deeper understanding of Jesus. And as you begin to answer those questions, guess what's going to happen? You're going to realize there's more questions. <laughs> With every answer comes a multiplication of questions. It's an exponential Development, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, right? And so this is not like, all right, guys, by next week, I want you to have explored Christ, understand the depths of Jesus, and have it all figured out so that next week we can move on to the next topic, okay? This is a lifelong journey, discovering what Jesus is like, exploring his depths. There's another thing that Peter points out here. He says, those who are ignorant and unstable twist scripture to make it say what they want it to say. 
So what Peter is really saying is, and he doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied here, don't be ignorant or unstable. Meaning, don't twist scripture to make it say what you want it to say. And when it comes to Jesus, don't take something to find about Jesus and give him genes. Like, don't make him something he's not. He is what scripture says he is. And the times in which we tend to make Jesus something he's not is when we realize he's something we don't want him to be. The Bible says Jesus is sovereign. Well, what does that mean? Well, right there, there's a hundred questions that run through my mind about Jesus' sovereignty. And they make me a little uncomfortable. And because they make me uncomfortable, I'm just going to kind of ignore it. Or when I read a scripture about Jesus' sovereignty, I'm just going to make it say kind of what I want it to say so I don't have like to think about how sovereign he is and I'll just kind of live with who Jesus is to me personally. He's, he's my God, my Savior. He loves me. He died for my sins. I'm just going to kind of stay in that little comfort zone. Don't talk to me about all these deeper theologies concerning Jesus and the way he behaves and his nature and his work and how he sovereignly works in all the details of reality because then I have to start thinking things about God that just don't suit where I'm at and I don't want to be pushed. That creates lame Christianity. We have to be willing to explore those depths. And what we do if we're not willing to explore those depths, while we study the Bible, we will twist scripture to make it say what we want to say so that we don't have to address those tough questions and those hard issues. And what Peter would call us if we do that is ignorant and unstable. Who here wants to be labeled as ignorant and unstable? None of us, right? Of course we don't. And listen, I'm not, there's not some magic formula to understanding the depths and reality of Christ. The, the formula is simple, study the word. Come to church, get fed, go to life groups, become part of a life group so that you can be fed there and build, relational, build relationships in which you can actually start to explore these things together and ask people questions, do discipleship, be discipled, disciple somebody, learn. And you'll be wrong sometimes, and that's okay. Sometimes you'll learn something about Jesus, and it's wrong. And then you'll hear someone teach you that, hey, you're wrong, and you gotta go, ah, oh well, I was wrong, time to learn again. Pivot, turn, and go towards Christ. The point here is that the truth is sometimes difficult and challenging and hard to understand, but that is not an excuse to go deeper. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people tell me, oh, you're too deep. I'm like, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that. Someone once told me you should be a professor instead. I'm like, uh, I've, I've been in seminary. <laughs> I am not a qualified professor can tell you that much. I've heard these guys talk. They, these professors, read my writing. They go, hey, you should write better. <laughs> so I'm not qualified for that at all. And what I'm saying, the reason I, I say that is just to let you know that like, I'm trying to be relatable to you in the way that I communicate God's word because I don't want to be over your head. But the reality of the word is it should push you. You should be like, whoa, that was a little deep for me. And that's okay. All that tells you is, I got to bring my shovel next week. Because we're going to dig. And I'm going to get pushed. 
Because I'm glad that my pastor is not comfortable with me just being comfortable. And he's going to make me push a little deeper and a little harder and a little further into Christ. That should be something you look forward to, not push against. So my hope, and it's really hard, I'll be honest with you guys, as a preacher, it's really hard to be shallow enough for the uh, believer who is, doesn't know as much and to be deep enough for the believers who do. That's really hard. That's a wide range to hit in a sermon. I try. Hey, I'm growing too, right? I'm learning like you are. In fact, when I preach, I'm really just telling you things that I'm learning. We're learning together, okay? And so... My desire is that, that we are not using, oh, I only know this. Uh, I, I don't really want to go deeper. Uh, I, I'm just not that smart of a person. or uh, I don't really think that way. I, that's not my cup of tea to kind of like be, think theologically and care about doctrines. That's kind of like a, a, you know, a pastor preacher's job. It's for those smart people. That's, that's a lame excuse to not grow. That's literally saying, I don't want to grow because I like being dumb. We, 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 if, if, I mean, that's really what someone is saying when they say it. And I'm just thinking to myself that that's not acceptable. And I don't think any of you are dumb at all. I don't think I've ever said anything that's too much for anybody here. And so, no more excuses. Time for us as a church to dig a little deeper. A healthy church is made up of healthy people. I want to be a healthy church. Don't worry about programs. Don't worry about the ministry. Don't worry about the church in general getting deeper and healthier. If you want to be in a healthy church, you worry about yourself. Amen. Worry, not worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Worrying is a sin. Uh, care about your own personal development and spiritual growth. You dig deeper yourself. If we all do that, it will organically, naturally produce in effect, we are helping each other grow. And as you individually grow spiritually, we as a congregation, united together in, the, in Christ by the Holy Spirit, will grow together. And we will become, as individuals, a congregation that is healthy. That's my heart. That's my aim. And that's why I'm starting with this. Because nothing in the world is more important than Jesus. If we can't get Jesus right, we're in big trouble. He is the reason there are multiple religions. He's the reason there are multiple sects within Christianity. He's the reason that Mormons exist and Jehovah's Witnesses exist. He is the reason for most of the heresies that have ever come to light in the history of the church. He is he's the dividing point. You could go to most religions in the world and sit and have a conversation with them, people who don't, don't even believe in the same Bible as us, and you could start talking with them about God. And for about 20 minutes, you'd be on the same page. You could go to someone who's a Mormon and talk about God all day long, and you would agree on everything until you start bringing up Jesus. You could talk to someone who's Jehovah's Witness all day long. God, God, God. Yes, he's great and he rules the world and he created everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you talk about Jesus and they go, oh, you mean that guy that God created? Eh, wrong. There's a huge difference between Christianity and all the other religions in the world and Jesus is the dividing line. If we can't get him right, we're in trouble. Which means we can't just settle for a lame Jesus. 
We can't settle for a comfortable Jesus. Think of, imagine this. You're an apostle of the first century. You're on a boat. You're fishing. That's all you do. You got a wife at home. You're like, oh, I hate fishing, whatever. You're just doing your thing. And Jesus walks up on the shore. He's like, hey, follow me. And you're like, okay. And you just jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus and spend the rest of your life with him. Imagine that's you. You went from a life of, I do this every day, it's comfortable, it's the same, nothing changes, to all of a sudden I'm following this guy around. Do you think that, say, Peter's life got more comfortable when he met Jesus? No! He, his life got really hard. Every time he did something stupid, Jesus was like, Peter, come on! He's like, sorry, Lord. So, like, he was constantly pushed. Jesus was constantly challenging them. And every time they had a thought, they'd be like, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? And then he'd respond with a question or an answer that just changed the way they think. He was endlessly changing their minds. That should be you today all the time. If you started lifting weights, you lifted weights three times a week, let's say, and you put 100 pounds on the bench press, okay, and you start lifting those 100 pounds, after a week, you're going to be able to add some weight, right? You're going to be like, all right, when I started the week, these 100-pound bench presses were hard, but, you know, I've been doing them for maybe a couple weeks now. Now it's easy, and I'm just throwing them up like it's nothing. So what do you do? You add weight. What if you don't add weight? Then what happens? You're still strong. You're stronger than you were when you started, but now you've plateaued. You're not gaining weight. You're not gaining muscle. You're not getting stronger. If you never add weight to the bar, you never get stronger. If you want your faith to grow, you have to start adding weight. Which means you have to start digging deeper into the realities of who Christ is and what he's done. Not because he's just one important aspect of your faith. But because he is your faith. He is your faith. He's the point. He's the purpose. If he's not the center of your attention every day, then there's something that needs to change. Nothing in your life matters more than Jesus. We ought to know him better. A healthy church is a church that is willing to let traditions die. A healthy church is a church that is willing to let your presuppositions die, to let your bad theology die, to let your poor doctrine die, and to let your lame Jesus die if it's wrong. 15th century Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this, In Christ... Our treasures, our treasures that will require digging to the end of the world. Simple statement, so profound. Meaning, there are endless treasures in Christ. And I think a lot of Christians get saved. They get this new shovel called the Bible, and they're like, oh, I'm going to dig. Cool, this is fun. Oh, Jesus is loving Oh, dig a little deeper. Jesus is faithful. Dig a little deeper. Jesus is so kind. Jesus is compassionate. And then you dig a little deeper, and then you're kind of like, you know, I've learned a lot about Jesus. I think I'm going to relax and rest a little bit now. You put the shovel down, and you've got an entire universe of truths to explore, and you're just comfortable with the few things you know. That's not Christianity. That's not what the apostles went through. That's not what the early church went through. When I say early church, I'm talking about even 200 and 300 and 400 A.D. This church was thriving. Doctrines were exploding. Theology was being challenged. People were learning and growing and philosophically thinking about truth. 
And now we get to the age of comfort and ease. And we don't want to be shook. We don't want to be shook or stirred. I think the best way to approach the exploration of the depths of Jesus is to understand one thing. That at one time, in one moment, Jesus can be two things at the same time. And these two things, from our perspective, can oppose each other. So it could be two things that are seemingly opposite, yet he is both of them at the same time. 18th century reformer, Jonathan Edwards. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, come see me. Do you know who Jonathan Edwards is? Does that mean yeah, or do you not know and you want me to give you one of his books? You want a book? He's got a title. One of his books, the title of his book is 47 words long. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of the kind of thinker that he was back in the 18th century. But he wrote a sermon. And the sermon title was The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. Totally like an 18th century sermon title. Uh, much more difficult to piece together than a healthy church explores Christ. So <laughs> what that means and what Jonathan Edwards meant by that and he explored in this sermon is that Jesus can be two diverse things at the same time and that the very nature of the diversity in his characteristics is what makes those diversities so excellent. What makes Christ so great is that he's two seemingly opposite things at the same time and that in him being both of those things at the same time and that he can be both of them perfectly is what makes him and those diversities so excellent. Just to give you an idea how long that sermon was, when I write my sermons, they're three to four pages long. I took... Edward's sermon, copied and pasted it, put it on my word, and made it the same font and size and everything as my sermons. It was 23 pages long. Now, he was preaching during the great First Great Awakening. He was instrumental in the First Great Awakening, the greatest revival in American history. That was huge. These people sat through hours and hours and hours of sermons in a day, and they loved it and soaked it up. They wanted Christ. They wanted to explore Jesus. They wanted to know Jesus. They wanted to grow in Jesus. They wanted change and truth and freedom, not just political and religious freedom in their country. They wanted freedom in Christ. They wanted more. So if you're, if you're sitting here and we're at 45 minutes, you're going, come on, Pastor Mark, hurry up. You care more about lunch than Jesus. Right? I got to be honest with you. There are times when I'm like looking at the clock and I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't think they're going to like the length of this one. And then I think to myself, man, what's a couple extra minutes? And you guys all went, amen. Right, okay. <laughs> so I have a couple examples of the, <laughs> I got to look at it again. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's what we're going to call them. The idea that Jesus is two things at the same time, and in being that, he is excellent and makes those things excellent. I'll give you a couple, e I think, what are easy examples that we all agree with. These should not be uncomfortable to you. 
Number one, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. In Revelation 5, 5 through 6, Jesus is described this way. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And those seven seals are judgment. That's judgment. He alone is worthy to judge the earth because he was the lion, because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So here, Jesus is described as mighty and powerful, and he's given a metaphorical allegiance to a lion who is the king of the jungle, like he's king of the world. He's called the conqueror, and he's defined here by victory. And then verse 6, you see this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, Jesus is given this metaphorical allegiance to a lamb. Not only a lamb, but a lamb that was slain. Have you ever seen a slain lamb? I was going to Google it and get a picture and put it up here for you so you could understand how you could visualize this metaphor. So when I looked online, I was like, or not. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. I have to mark this sermon as rated R. It's brutal. Okay? So don't Google it. And if you're thinking, oh, now I want to Google it, don't Google it! <laughs> I'm telling you, don't do it. So in one verse, Jesus goes from mighty conqueror of power to a lamb that is subject to slaughter. How can the king of the universe who conquers all things also be this just submissive and obedient animal? that has no will of its own other than that which the shepherd makes it do. And you, when, when lambs get slaughtered, they just take it. They don't even know what's going on. They're just like, man, eating grass, man. And then someone just whoosh, kills them. And they're just kind of like, I guess I'll die now. And they just die. So they have like no, they can't be like, no. They don't even understand what's going on. And that's like the metaphor for Jesus. He, he does understand what's going on. He completely understands what's going on. He gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him apart from his will. He gave it up. But there is this submissive sense to the Lamb. How do you combat that with the mighty, glorious king of the universe who never, ever was created but has existed since eternity past? How do you put those things together that is diverse excellency? Example number two. Jesus is glorious and humble. Proverbs 30 verse 4 tells us about the highness. This is what Jonathan Edwards calls the infinite highness of Jesus. He says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? That's the glorious height of God, of Christ. All of existence is just in his hands. If we try to compare it to us playing with ants, it's a terrible comparison. You pick up a colony of ants, you put them in your hand, they're all over the place. You can't control them. You can't speak to the ants like, stop moving, and they just stop moving. They won't. They'll just keep crawling around. Crawl up your arm. You could kill them, you could kind of toil them, pull their legs off, or whatever kids do to ants, right? 
but you really can't control them. You can direct them, maybe. Jesus completely controls. Okay, and then we have this diverse excellency of his humility. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we see the ultimate humility of Jesus, more humble than any human who's ever existed. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, what? Nothing. Taking the form of a servant. He's not a servant, he's a king. Being born in the likeness of men. He's not a man, he's God. Then he becomes a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Why would he become obedient? He determines what obedience is, and he sets the standard and the rules. So to whom is he obedient? To his Father. Why? Because he chooses humility and service for your sake. Became obedient to the point of death. He can't die. He's God. He chooses death for you. What kind of death? The worst. Death on a cross. How can he be gloriously rule over all of creation, yet at the same time be humbled? My point is, is not to answer the, detail, the details of those specific examples, but to kind of get us thinking like, there's more to Christ than I am willing, more to Christ than I've been willing to consider. Like, we have to dive deeper into Jesus. Jesus is not just some saving ticket. It's not like when you get saved, Jesus goes, here's your ticket. It's the Jesus ticket. It's a white ticket because it's righteousness. And you put it in your pocket, and you're like, I'll save that for later when I get to heaven. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to see God, and I'm going to be like, here you go. Here's my ticket Jesus gave me. He's not a ticket. He is life. That's like getting married and thinking that the point of marriage is to own a marriage certificate. And you carry it on your pocket, and you're like, I've been married. Big whoop. Where's your wife, dude? I don't know. I got a marriage certificate. Who cares where she is? Well, how's she doing? I don't know. I don't ask her. I don't talk to her. Well, you're not married. Yeah, but I got a certificate that says I am. Have you learned anything about her? No, why would I? I don't care. I've got a marriage certificate. That, 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 you see how ridiculous that sounds? That's how Christians treat Jesus. He's their ticket into heaven. I can do whatever I want. Romans 6 says, no, you can't. The purpose of grace is obedience and righteousness. The purpose of grace isn't so you can just forget about Jesus till you die. Example number three. Jesus is obedient and sovereign. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus says to the Father, he's about to die, he's in the garden, he's going to die. He's like, uh, hey, Father, I, not, I don't want to die. Like, I, I want to, it's my will Two, to give up my life, and it's your will, but could we let this one just slide? <laughs> like, he's expressing his emotion. He's expressing his humanity. And then in his humanity, from that expression, he says this, Nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. So we've got this humility, this obedience of Jesus to say, I, though I am Sovereign over all creation. I'm obedient to my Father. And then in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we got this opposite image of Jesus. That seems like, how could he be both at the same time? Listen to how Paul describes Jesus. This is my favorite text in the entire Bible. If, if you don't love this text, I'm going to say you don't love Jesus. Because this makes Jesus look so 
awesome. Listen to this. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Not born, but firstborn being. He's got the first rights to creation as the first son. Okay, So it's not about being physically born or being created. Because Jehovah's Witnesses will take this verse and say, See, Jesus was created just like every other man. It's their misinterpretation. So he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You could put etc. there and say all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a huge statement. In him all things hold together. I'm going to touch on that in a second. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to rise to life. You could say, well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus had to die again. Jesus rose to life for good. First one to ever do it. And that in everything, he might be preeminent or first place. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Oh, I love that verse, those verses. Jesus is sovereign over all things. You see that? In him, all things hold together. When I was a youth pastor in Illinois, I took these kids to a Bible camp over the winter. And we went on the back 40, and there was these huge soft snow piles. And we just kind of fell backwards into the snow piles, just plopped into the snow. And we were all suited up, so we were nice and warm. And just, it, you know, it's like, it's like memory foam. just kind of melt into it. We just laid there for like 15 minutes and stared at the open sky. No lights. We were out in the middle of nowhere. And always see our stars, really clear, beautiful night. And one of the kids, 16-year-old boy named Caleb, laying right next to me. And we're all staring up. There's like a handful of us. And he says, just think. While Jesus was dying on the cross, he was still sovereignly holding each star in its place. <laughs> I, was, I looked at him and I was like, Dude, you're 16? Did I teach you that? Like, and then he went on to say, I can't even do my homework and watch TV at the same time. <laughs> I was like, that. Um, I'm never going to forget that comment. Jesus is sovereign over all things. All things. Nothing exists without, without his control. Nothing happens outside of his control. Think about it like this. Not only does he reign over every single molecule in existence, which just on, on its own is crazy, that there's some molecule floating out in the middle of space 10 gazillion light years away, and he's just like doing this with it, whatever it does. I don't know how they move. And he's just moving it. And you're like, why? He doesn't care. Why, why would he even pay attention to that? Because he's sovereign. Because it's his. He owns it. He does what he wills with it. Not only is he control over every molecule, one snowflake on the top of Everest, one grain of sand in the, near the middle of the earth, all of it, sovereignly just moving according to his plan. Not only that, but he also reigns over every single idea or thought or concept that has not come to, that has not come true 
or has not come to life. What I'm saying is every single thought or idea or possibility he's already thought of. You cannot think of a scenario or a concept or an idea or something that he hasn't already thought of. In fact, if you think of it, it's just validation that he's already thought of it because the only way you can think about it is if he's thought about it first. And some of those thoughts seem really pointless. Let me give you an example. You guys want to go on a thought journey with me? <laughs> this is going to sound weird. Okay. <laughs> Imagine a piece of pizza. And this piece of pizza grows legs. I know this is weird. So, and <laughs> I'm glad the kids are enjoying this. Okay, so the piece of pizza grows legs, becomes super intelligent, builds a space rocket, gets in the space rocket, flies to Mars with some pigs, creates a pig colony. The pigs become super strength and super intelligent, and then they create this new pig colony led by Pizza Man on Mars, and then travel... <laughs> Travel back to Earth to invade Earth and take us over. Okay, that's just a little... The reason I made... The reason I thought of the most stupidest, most pointless and ridiculous thought journey I could think of is to show you that I could not have thought of that if Jesus hadn't already thought of that. And I, I don't know about you, but i got to be thinking to myself, why would Jesus think about that? Why would he ever consider such a stupid and mindless and pointless thought journey? Why would he even? Because every single possible reality or possibility he has already explored. And there are an infinite, listen to me, this word is huge, infinite, endless number of ideas or thoughts or concepts or realities that he has already conceived of and chose not to become a reality. That's sovereignty. So I know that that little thought journey was really s foolish and ridiculous and stupid and silly, and that's my point. It's so ridiculous. Why would he care to think about it? Because it's not hard for him. He's not like, oh, i gotta, I got to sit down and write down every possibility there is, but there's endless and infinite ones, and I don't know what to do, and i got to write them all down. Oh, Mark just thought of one stupid pizza man travels to Mars. So i got to write that down. Like that, That's not how he works. He just knows them all. Every possibility. And they're infinite. So he not only rules over every grain of reality, but he also rules over that which does not exist. And its non-existence remains non-existent because he determines it to be non-existent. Nothing happens without him causing it. Now notice I did not say nothing happens without him allowing it. I don't think Jesus allows anything. I think he ordains all things. That right there, that statement alone ought to create about 20 questions in your head. If you really start taking that truth, he doesn't allow anything. He causes everything. Nothing, nothing, he doesn't react to anything. He is proactive, not reactive. If he's reactive, he's a manager. If he's proactive, he's sovereign. So that idea right there ought to make, get you start thinking about a lot of things. So if he's causing everything, then what about all the bad things? I'm not even going to answer it. We'll get there. That's week 12 and 13. I gave us two weeks to address those questions at the end of this series on sovereignty of God. 
But just think about gravity. He doesn't just set gravity in, in motion. He's not a God who creates order and then writes some code to make the order work and then walks away. That's how we think of him because that's what we do. And we, we bring Jesus down to humanity and we go, you're, you're just like this. You're like us. We write code for programs. The programs work according to the code that's written for them. That's how we operate as humans. We create machines. The machines do their job because we told them what to do and then we walk away and it does it on its own. That's not how Jesus operates because we're not sovereign. Now we're intelligent and incredibly smart human beings, so he gave us the wisdom to create machines that do things like that. But he doesn't need that because he is ultimately wise and sovereign. And so when he creates something like gravity, he doesn't just go, I'm going to write this gravity formula, set it into place, and then walk away. And every time you jump in the air and you're forced back down by gravity, Jesus isn't over here doing something else. Oh, did you just jump? Did you like my gravity? I built that myself. <laughs> That's not how he operates. This is crazy. It's when you think about the details, I could spend an entire sermon describing the details of how you jumping up and down and how Jesus is involved in every single molecule. You jump in the air, and he isn't just there going, you go up and you go down. <laughs> like your little kidneys going, yay, wee, you know. And so what happens is when you jump in the air or, or, a, or a ball is falling to the ground, he is literally managing every single molecule to move correctly around aerodynamically or whatever and applying the right amount of gravitational force and causing the air molecules to move. He's involved in every detail. And you might be thinking to yourself, that seems like a huge waste of time. Not at all. Why would he care about such details? Why wouldn't he just set it in order and leave it alone and just let it operate so he doesn't have to think about that stuff? Because it's not hard. That's not hard for him. He can't just leave it alone. If he leaves it alone, if he sets it in order, just lets it go free willy-nilly, and he gives gravity free will, or at least to operate within his parameters of how gravity functions, and if he does that, then he has removed himself from being sovereignly, to sovereignly working through it, over and in it. He's no longer sovereign over gravity. He has to be involved in them. Every single application of gravity on your shoulders right now is Jesus forcing that gravity on you. Intimately involved in every molecule. And if it seems like that just seems like a ridiculous idea. Why would he care? Because he controls everything. He has to care. If he stops caring and stops being sovereign over it, gravity will cease and we'll probably float up into the atmosphere. Or whatever happens. He, it, it seems ridiculous. It's as ridiculous to be, for him to be that involved is just as ridiculous as Jesus spending time thinking about Pizza Man flying to Mars. Why does he do it? Because he can, and it's not hard, and he can easily be involved in every single detail, which, is, which, which I know you have to believe, because if you believe that Jesus is in Africa right now, sitting beside a starving and thirsty five-year-old child who is emaciated and dying because he's not fed, and you don't think that he doesn't care about that child? He is arm around that child, crying and weeping for the hungry and the lost and the dying and the hurt all over the world. There are millions of people who need Jesus and he is sympathizing with every single one of them. And if you believe he does care and that he is there with that child while he is here with us interceding on your behalf today, then you have to believe in a sovereign God who is in control of every single molecule and is intimately involved with every time you jump in the air and land on the ground. So, gravity is just an example. Jesus cannot 
just set creation in place and let it run. That's not a personal God. It's not an involved God. That's not a sovereign God. That's a manager. So some aspects of Jesus' sovereignty will create more questions than answers, and those questions need answers. And that ought to be the case in anything we consider about Christ, that, when we, that, that we are willing to ask questions, we're willing to wonder, we're willing to inquire and, and be creative and think and discover and decide and explore and maybe be wrong. It's okay to be wrong. You know how many times I've been wrong at this pulpit? It's happened. It's going to happen again. It might have happened today. I don't know. We have to be willing to be wrong because you have to put yourself out there to learn. So instead of being Christians who coast throughout our entire Christian life, living off of what we've learned 20 years ago, let's dig deeper into Christ. A healthy church does not ignore the diversity of the character of Christ. A healthy church explores it. If we are at least willing to explore the depths of Christ that make us a little uncomfortable, then we are at least headed toward being healthy Christians that make a healthy church. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. You are everything. Without you, we are nothing. Without you, we die in our sin. Without you, we don't know goodness, we don't know grace, we don't know love, we don't know kindness and compassion and mercy and faithfulness. All that we are is in you. We don't just know you. We have you. We possess you. And you possess us. You are our friend, our brother, our Lord, our God, and our Savior. And there's more to you than we could ever explore. In fact, there's so much depth to you, Jesus. You have decided to give us eternity to discover it. Because that's how fast you are. So let us not waste time waiting for eternity to discover. Move us now to find you to be ultimately satisfying. Pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hope you guys have a beautiful week. See you later.